Welcome to At the Threshold, a podcast for ministry leaders during this new, unsettled season in the life of the church. We are your hosts, Ashley Alley Crawford and Shelley Pitts. And we are both clergy in the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately a thousand churches in the states of Kansas and Nebraska. Shelley works with clergy faith and wellness with the Great Plains Conference. And Ashley is the Clergy Recruitment and Development Coordinator, and we're sharing this from the Office of Clergy Excellence. Our focus here in At the Threshold is to host a conversation with and for clergy in order to describe what's happening, ask questions to help get us unstuck, and encourage the heart of pastors and leaders in this liminal time in which we find ourselves. Liminal may be a new word, but a new season calls for a new word. Liminal means a threshold from what we've always known to, well, we don't know just yet what life and ministry is becoming. Our goal here is to find a little light at the threshold. In our conversations, we are seeking to describe some of the dynamics that we're seeing and identify some questions and possibilities that are bubbling up for us. Ultimately, we hope you leave today with your heart encouraged in some way. Each time we gather, it's our hope that you'll glean one or two things to think about, act upon, or pray through. We just want to welcome everyone joining us today for our conversation. Today is our second in a series of uh, a topic that we are calling Back to School Theology 101. Just as students are returning to the classroom this fall, we wanted to provide an opportunity for pastoral leaders to return to learning as well as we are sorting through some of the theological concerns of this season. Early in the pandemic, whether we were able to put a name on it or not, each of us were really in the thick of experiencing grief. There was a loss in our normal routines, a loss of major celebration, of rites of passage or planned experiences, and even the loss of of life. Grief is a part of our human experience, but typically the whole world is not grieving at the same time. Our guest today acknowledges this grief and the soul-shaping aspects of this season by pointing us to the worship book of the ancients, the Psalms. In our time today, we're going to hear from someone who is pointing us to the healing and the painful words of scripture that, that point us to a faithful witness of God in these turbulent times. We have invited Dr. Chris Quam to share with us today. Dr. Quam is Professor of Theology at St. Paul School of Theology in Greater Kansas City and Oklahoma City. She also teaches courses in the fields of engaging world religions and women's society and church studies. Born and raised in Litchfield, Minnesota, amid the tenacity of the Nordic Lutheran piety, Chris holds degrees from Emory University, Yale University, and St. Olaf College. Scriptural interpretation, Christian doctrine, and Luther studies form primary concerns of her scholarship. A lay member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, Dr. Quam has extensive experience as an ecumenical theologian and has served the church through several global ecumenical bodies, 
We are so grateful for her presence here today. Dr. Kwam, we look forward to what you will share with us. As a means of just getting started, could you share with us maybe just one thing that hasn't shown up in this brief bio to help us get to know a moment about you before we begin? Oh, that's a great invitation. Thank you, Shelley. Um, one thing I didn't say in that bio is how much I love to garden and uh, love to get my hands dirty. It's a great counterpart to, you see all the paper behind me. I love paper too, but uh, dirt is a second love. So that's one thing I would share. As Shelly and I would talk to, um, about this particular invitation, um, we came up with this title, uh, Gnashing Teeth and Nurturing Souls in relation to the Psalms. So I want to sh um, start there. And then I, um, just to let you know the, how I'm seeing our hour together, I want to talk a little bit about the Psalms and us. Um, that'll be kind of a Bible 101 for some of you, kind of refresher course. Um, gnashing teeth will be part two, and then part three, nurturing souls. And then we'll have these conversations and questions and answers at the seams of each. So if you could hold some of your questions or comments till the end, that would be great. Um, I wanted to say that I, I saw many familiar faces and some of you have studied the Psalms with me. So um, you'll, some of this will be familiar and some of it is probably even shaped by your contributions. Um, I appreciate that and I'm grateful for the students of St. Paul's School of Theology and the ways they engage in a serious theological deliberations. So here's a little back to seminary part. I just want to um, set a context for us in thinking about the Psalter. Um, and I want to start with uh, by thinking about the development of reading. Um, we take it for granted in many ways, uh, those of us who are in educated circles, but it, it really is a, an amazing um, feat when you stop to think about it. We learn to speak uh, without having to be really taught. We learn to speak kind of through osmosis, but reading takes a kind of discipline and it um, wasn't always available. The time and the energy it took to learn to read wasn't widely available um, really until the, the early modern era opened up um, greater accent on public schools. So um, the development of the printing press uh, with Gutenberg and others um, helped us stabilize texts and make them more affordable. So there's kind of a, combina a, a nice coordination of people learning to read and uh, um, people purchasing texts. Um, the printing industry is a really fascinating uh, in development. Um, uh, Gutenberg actually went bankrupt. Uh, it's a piece of his story I didn't know until uh, the last few years, um, but it cost so much for him to print the Bible, the first run of the Bible, and I guess his printing press shop was just full of uh, sheaves of paper um, that his investor called in the loan and he couldn't pay it. And so uh, he had to uh, sell his printing presses. 
Um, but I just want to think about the importance of reading and how, especially um, in certain Protestant circles, that becomes a really important part of our Christian study, that we are able to um, connect with the text by reading it independently. Um, the second point there is on academic disciplines. I want you to think a little bit of the, uh, the great chasm that uh, um, develops between Bible and theology in the modern period. It's interesting that even as we um, are <laughs> the uh, heirs of a tradition on sola scriptura or scripture alone and the primacy of the Bible um, in Protestantism, uh, we also um, see a divorce in some ways between theological studies and biblical studies. And part of that is because the development of biblical studies becomes so specialized. The numbers of languages uh, that uh, are reclaimed, um, you, you probably know that the um, Reformation happened around the time of the Renaissance and a re reclaiming of languages of Greek and Hebrew, um, not just working in Latin, but um, eventually we learn other languages, Aramaic and other Semitic languages. And, and these are all formative for biblical scholarship. Also the um, deep study of history, geography, iconography, archeology, span all of these are um, developments in the modern era and shape uh, the ways that biblical scholars approach the biblical text. Um, as Shelley pointed out in my um, intro, I always see myself as kind of working on the cusp between biblical scholarship and constructive theology with Luther studies um, kind of a dash in there too. Um, and I just put up the first text I worked on um, is a a reading of Eve and Adam's story in Ju Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I uh, edited that with two friends, um, uh, uh, important work for us and looking at the history of interpreting that story. And uh, now uh, some of the students, now alums, um, will recognize that I'm doing a lot of work on that Hagar and Sarah and their families because I teach a course at the seminary called People of the Book, where we look at uh, the importance of scripture in Judaism, Christianity, and in Islam in particular. Um, all of that leads to just telling a little bit about an invitation I received um, from uh, uh, Amy Planninga-Pow and the late Bill Plaker to write for um, Westminster John Knox launched a series called Belief, and their desire was to ask theologians to um, write biblical commentary uh, that usually, and I've even had good friends who are biblical scholars say, though theologians have no uh, truck with writing biblical commentary, that's the provenance of um, biblical scholars, but this was the this is the project of belief. And so maybe some of you know some of those volumes, Justo Gonzalez and uh, um, many others have been writing, oh, 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 sorry, I went too fast, have been writing in that. Um, yeah, and I'm working with Don Saliers of Emory University on um, the Psalms, and it probably will be the last uh, volume that's published in the series. It's taking us a long time, but uh, we're finding our way. But opportunities like this, a chance to share my research and think and talk with others helps me prepare for that. 
Um, before we uh, get into talking about the psalm study, um, I would ask if we could just take a moment for prayer, um, just to kind of focus ourselves. So if you would get in a comfortable position, I'm going to ask you to do two, no, let's, let's do three centered breathings with me. So would you please breathe in God's life and breathe out God's love for the whole world. Breathe in God's life. Breathe out God's love for the whole world. Breathe in God's life. Breathe out God's love for the whole world. Amen. So let's just kind of uh, chat a little bit about the, the Psalms themselves. Uh, they're, you know, they're written in uh, what we call, term Hebrew poetry, um, and it has the features that I've listed there, the second item, uh, the, the vocabulary is dance, it's simple, um, but it's also innovative, so you get a lot of interesting um, twists on familiar imagery that uh, is part of what makes it so uh, um, salient across eras of time. Uh, the other, another feature point three there that many of the Hebrew words are unknown to us. Some of them are used only once or twice in the whole of scripture. So um, scholars debate and uh, uh, try to understand what is this root and what does it mean in this context, or maybe I should say root. Um, but the, it's a fascinating thing that such an ancient text also has so much mystery and so much discovery, including the new discoveries that are coming to Psalm study because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 40s. So that that uh, work is really just beginning to be harvested and many of you will see new information uh, across your lifetime and uh, that's true for generations to come. Um, one of the uh, significant features of uh, Hebrew po poetry is the use of par parallel lines um, that sometimes uh, reiterate the same point or amplify the same point or sometimes even uh, um, work at the point from the opposite position. And we'll see some of that as we get into particular Psalms later on. But just to remember that that's one of the um, important features that we've come to see about psalm studies, and it really helps um, in uh, thinking about Hebrew poetry. And another piece, uh, I don't know when you, you took your, your uh, <laughs> um, Hebrew Bible class, but well, the development in the modern scholarship uh, included grouping psalms into kinds of uh, collections, um, so-called genre criticism or even form criticism. And one of the things that they noticed uh, on this point is that um, psalms can sometimes be spoken by an individual and sometimes they're spoken by a community. Um, so that uh, the, the voicing can be quite different. Um, and then also there, there's difference in structure, and some uh, structures have 
particular forms, and uh, the lament is one of those, those structures. Um, so I want to talk about that today. But also, um, there are other psalms that don't have particular structures, but they have uh, they resonate with each other because of uh, the kind of theme they have or the content, and the, the so-called trust psalms um, that I'm using as a comfort psalm are in that category. So it just kind of uh, developing that point a little further, um, the form structure, but um, people often talk about uh, that some Psalms are hymns, some are thanksgiving, some are laments. And over here on um, content and theme, the wisdom Torah, uh, the emphasis on uh, um, being wise and not foolish or obeying the law and not disobeying it. Um, and then the Psalms of Zion, uh, the kind of a treasury of Jerusalem, the Zion Psalms, enthronement Psalms, sometimes they're called royal Psalms. Uh, and they may have been um, used in particular occasions of a king on after the destruction of um, the monarchy. They may be more uh, thinking about God as king. And then uh, also entrance Psalms that might be the entrance into Jerusalem or the entrance into um, the temple itself. So um, here's our first point of conversation. I wanted to ask you some things about the, the Psalms and how they factor in your own professional and personal life. And it'd just be fun to hear from a few of you about um, where in terms of your congregation, uh, what kind of liturgical use, here's, a, here's a kind of the Lutheran sensibility that um, where do you, some of you may use the Revised Common Lectionary where there is a psalm assigned for each day, uh, Sunday. Um, it's common to use especially Psalm 23 at funerals, but a lot of our hymnody uh, is also based in the Psalter. Um, and some of you may have used, oops, used psalms for preaching. Um, so liturgical use, or have you done biblical studies with the, the psalms? And then thinking about matters of personal prayer and personal study. Yes, grace. Uh, I use psalms in my personal prayers, and I enjoy rewriting them into what's going on in my own life. And I find that sometimes when like free writing journaling doesn't work very well, then that's the time to look at a psalm and see how it's applying to my life. Oh, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful use to, to um, use the kind of the forms that we have, but put your own content to that uh, um, for your own prayer, prayer life. There's been, oh, go ahead, Ashley. There's a comment. I just was going to say, yeah, there's been a comment from, from the chat of somebody who's in, in her first appointment saying that she's often used um, them liturgically, but never preached them, but also uses them personally as well. Right? Yeah, they, they really are probably the most, the rarest uh, use of them is in preaching. Um, and even the Revised Common Lectionary isn't assigning them um, as a preaching text, uh, that it's really more as a response text. Uh, so uh, even if you follow the lectionary, uh, it's, you're not kind of encouraged to, to use them for um, preaching. I've been uh, involved since March in an interesting project where I do uh, um, online content produced with a, a 
ELCA pastor and a Presbyterian pastor. And um, during ordinary time, we find that um, we've had to negotiate what psalm we're going to use liturgically because there's a different track. Uh, Methodists, we think of the lectionary psalms as being the ones that follow the semi-continuous Old Testament readings, and there are thematic New Testament readings throughout ordinary time. And uh, that gives us a great deal of latitude. Um, and so I've kind of thrown myself into um, those quasi-thematic psalms liturgically, and that's been a great comfort, actually, for me. To, and I've done that in my own worship planning as well. And I usually do use them as uh, uh, liturgically, although I have preached on the Psalms and especially the 23rd Psalm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in my research on that, for that sermon, I mentioned that the popularity and the centrality of the 23rd Psalm is actually a 19th century American invention for Mm -hmm. a great part. Post-Civil War, um, it was the lament Psalm that, that, or the comfort Psalm that really uh, came into fashion at that time. Oh, that's fascinating, Dan. Yeah, that, uh, that, and that fits with, I think, so much of our customs and traditions around death and dying got reshaped because of the um, carnage of the Civil War and the great grief of the nation. So uh, um, there's a lot, lot of work has been done by American historians about grief and, and patterns of funeral rites um, following the Civil War, and that fits right in with that. Good, yeah. Yeah. One more question that has come in, and maybe now or through your presentation, if you could speak at some point to um, any wisdom you have for preaching um, on any of these texts through lament or through the nurturing of the souls, if you have any wisdom that you could offer through this time to us that may be coming, but we would welcome that. Well, I don't know, if, but it, well, yeah. Well, let's well, let's see if what we can maybe when we get to the end, if we can. Um, we'll, we're going to look at two psalms um, somewhat uh, deeply um, and see, see if we see opportunities uh, there. Or uh, actually, what the, the phrase in the biblical witness is usually that others are gnashing their teeth at you. The lament psalms tend to have a shape or a form. Um, and one of the things that scholars who work in this field, I mean, oops, they might identify uh, three, four, five. A lot of these things are kind of approximations, even um, the language of lament. Some people ra- rather would rather call them complaint psalms, and there's different language that gets used. So uh, you kind of have to be a little fluid. Um, But these are pretty much agreed upon that there's usually um, some form of address, an invocation, um, calling God into attention or asking God to uh, wake up even. Um, There's a a description of the grievance. Sometimes that's the longest section of uh, the lament. There's usually a statement of trust in God. 
Um, sometimes that includes recalling how God has acted uh, with the forebearers. We remember that you brought the people across the, the Red Sea kind of thing. Um, so it's stating the trust and then uh, call for God to act now. Um, and then you, uh, often there'll be a closing uh, promise by the lamenter um, not necessarily a, if you do this, I'll do that, but some sense I will praise you, I will trust in you, um, that kind of description. So with that in mind, I'm going to, um, if you can kind of keep those five points, invocation, grievance, trust in God, calling on God to act, and the promise, I wanted us to take a more sustained look at a particular lament psalm, Psalm 55. And I've asked Shelley and Ashley if they would take turns reading it. I'll just say at the beginning that um, this uh, superscription, it's called, and we'll talk about, oops, my I have, I guess I have a heavy finger today. Uh, um, uh, the superscription uh, is something we've learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, um, how late they get added and that they uh, are added with a kind of variety, that there, there are scrolls in the um, in that finding that have no superscription in them. To my prayer, O oh God, do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and answer me. I am troubled in my complaint. I am distraught. By the noise of the enemy, because of the clamor of the wicked, for they bring trouble upon me, and in anger they cherish enmity, enmity against me. That's a hard one. <laughs> my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Truly, I would flee far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find shelter for myself from the raging wind and tempest. Confuse, O oh Lord, confound their speech. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. It is not enemies who taunt me. I could bear that. It is not adversaries who deal insolently with me. I could hide from them. But it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. With whom I kept pleasant company, we walked in the house of God with the throng. Let death come upon them. Let them go down alive into Sheol, for evil is in their homes and in their hearts. But I call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem me unharmed from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God, 
who is enthroned from of old, will hear and will humble them because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion laid hands on a friend and violated a covenant with me. With a speech smoother than butter, but with a heart set on war, with words that were softer than oil, but in fact were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the lowest pit. The bloodthirsty and treacherous shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. I wanted to see, I've got some questions here. Um, I'm going to go to next for our conversation about lament. Um, and you may have others. These are three I, I, I pulled for us. I said that this psalm offers many descriptions of the enemy. What do you gather from the images that are used? How might these images apply and not apply to enemies known to you and your communities? And the second question I formed is verse 16 and 17 say that the psalmist calls upon God by complaint and moan, evening, morning, and at noon. How do you assess such a practice? Three, what does the psalmist ask God to do? How do you assess such requests? I can say one reason that... uh, of the lament psalms, maybe one thing I can say for all you're thinking is uh, one reason I chose this particular psalm today is that I was thinking about um, the incredible divisions that um, are upon us in our communities. And it seems that uh, these senses of betrayal by uh, intimates, that the enemy isn't only um, somebody far away, but the enemy is somebody who has been, as the psalmist says, my companion, my friend, um, that that sense of uh, betrayal and conflict is is something I've sure heard uh, people express, that they either are no longer friends or they cannot speak with their family members, um, and that sense of the psalm gives voice to that very real situation that so many of us are feeling. Well, and and I would add, you know, it, it says in verse two, it says, I'm distraught by the noise of the enemy, by the clamor of the wicked. And I just hear noise often <laughs> in, nice. in the world around. And it's not even like, a, um, I mean, it's just the distraction of the, lack of ability to kind of listen deeply and that sort of thing. So um, it's not even necessarily um, words that are, that are violent there, but just the noise of it becomes violent actually. That's a great point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely uh, um, would be a place where you could pause and think about um, matters of the noise that uh, um, so many people are just exhausted by. Thanks, Ashley. Other observations? Jim. Yeah. One of the things that that I think about when I read the Psalms is it's easy to read them and say, how does this relate to my enemies or those I see as my enemies? I found I'm spending much more time looking at those descriptions and saying, if I'm somebody else's enemy, and I am in this world, I mean, we live in a really divisive world, then that, how does that apply to me? 
if I, if I sit on the other side of that, what does it mean for me to be an enemy? And what does that mean in terms of God's call and claim on my life and what I'm supposed to do? Uh, because if I look at it in terms of, of mm-hmm. what it says about my enemy, then it just increases the division and lets me sit and, and, uh, and, uh, put myself over against someone else as opposed to saying, you know, what's it say about me? Not about them. What's it say about me? You know? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it kind of changed my reading of the Psalms in some ways. That's a beautiful point, Jim. And uh, was there something in particular that sparked that reading for you? No, no I, I think part of it is that, that I try to do, um, well, I use the Episcopal Daily Office, and so I'm usually reading four or five psalms a morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, we do one every Sunday in church. One of the readings is a psalm, and I try to make some reference in terms of working it into the preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as I've spent more and more time with them, um, I, I've really come to the point of saying I've either got to look at it in terms of I'm angry at everybody who doesn't like me, uh, and I'm going to cry out to God about that, or I'm going to say, "What does it mean for other people not to, to? What does it mean for other people to see me as my enemy?" Mm-hmm. And and that's the one way I can live with the Psalms, because otherwise it's really difficult for me to deal with the mm-hmm. uh, the anger and the lament and the division that seems to be in a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is troubling to uh, um, uh, many people, um, and, and so I think that is a very creative uh, um, approach to it. Uh, I'm at the end of my presentation, I got a little brief bibliography. Um, and uh, I've got on there an article where a biblical scholar has looked at this particular psalm in relationship to issues of uh, domestic and intimate partner violence. And uh, um, she uh, is encouraging us to kind of think of a different superscription um, and, and to think of it uh, where somebody who um, is now saying to their intimate companion, you know, you're betraying me, you're harming me. Um, uh, so that a different kind of reading is possible there too. But I'll, that'll, that's to come in terms of the bibliography for some of you who are working in that area or, or want to uh, follow through with it. Um, it's another way to think about issues of um, the, the use of this particular Psalm. Most of the lament Psalms end up with, with some kind of positive assertion. There is one, I think it's Psalm 88, uh, where it just ends. It doesn't say, uh, um, God, I know you'll you'll pull me out of this. I trust in you. Um, it just describes woe upon woe. So there is even a place for that in our Psalter. But I want to turn to the, the nurturing part of our time this morning and think of Psalms of Comfort. And this one, I was telling Shelley, the, this is the NRSV's title, the, a way of rendering the superscription. Um, in this Common English Bible, the CEB, it's called a pilgrimage song. Um, and in both ways, uh, the point is that um, there, there's this kind of sense of going up or being on a pilgrimage, and there's a collection of psalms in the Psalter um, from one Psalm 120 to 134 that are known as the Song of Ascents. And scholars debate, uh, what does this going up, being on pilgrimage mean? It, um, 
could mean that people are going to Jerusalem for a festival, or it could mean that people are going up the steps of the temple, and you know, could have a couple different meanings, but some sense of um, probably small songs that people sang. And uh, they're very short, usually. <laughs> I love this one, three verses. That's quite different than our work with <laughs> their complaint psalm earlier. Um, so often three to five verses, there's one that's eight verses. Um, but the sense is that they're probably, you know, um, because they're short, they could be memorized and people could sing them. Um, so that's one thing I want you to uh, know about this. Um, I've also been very interested, uh, several scholars um, have pointed out that they think this particular verse, if not the whole psalm, could have been written by a woman. It's one of the very few texts that I've seen uh, kind of standard traditional scholars uh, um, claiming, Patrick Miller being one, um, that this, this verse shows that uh, uh, the experience of a woman who has had a child and weaned that child successfully. Um, so that uh, the, speaking from that experience that I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. So the tremendous sense of comfort and calm um, and uh, uh, that has come about by kind of being uh, weaned, but being able to be reunited um, with the mother who, who at one time was a nursing mother. Uh, so to, um, we have a couple things going on here that are pretty incredible. Okay, we did that. Now, can you see, I put them side by side, the, the difference between um, this, what the NRSV has and its alternate. Um, both of them have this like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me, or my soul within me is like a weaned child. But either way, uh, there's a, a great attentiveness to what it means to now return to find comfort in the, uh, and be able to be held without the anxiety. Those of us who have nursed and weaned, uh, um, you know how there's a long period where when the child comes to your lap, it's uncomfortable for you and the child because it wants to nurse and you don't want it to nurse anymore. And there's that kind of uh, awkward negotiation of space and, and um, but here this has happened now successfully, the weaning has been accomplished. And this is the psalmist depiction of, this is what my soul is like. My soul is like a weaned child. And uh, some people then say there's similarly, not only is this maybe authored by a woman, but there is a, um, an image of God as um, a mother who has weaned um, at work in this psalm, that the soul uh, is now comfortable with God like a child who has been weaned. 
so that's one text I wanted to really bring to you today. Short as it is, um, it's just beautifully pithy. And I put a couple of questions for us. Um, how does it shape your experience of this text to imagine it being sung by a woman as she walked to a festival? Two, what do you make of its imagery of God as a mother who has weaned her child so successfully? And three, what do you make of its image of the singer of this psalm as being calm in the lap of such a mother? And this is where biblical scholars can point us in certain directions, but we as theologians uh, can then develop um, in our uh, theologizing and our own practice of prayer and leading congregational study, we can think more deeply about what this gem um, might mean for us. So I think it's interesting to think about um, being that weaned child um, and what that feels like, that not weaned child and how that feels. And it is anxious as you described, and it's you're hungry and you're seeking and you're needing, you know, it's very self-centered, I guess, is the word that I would, mm -hmm. I would look for. And so that, so that flip of um, being nestled in the lap of a, of a mother and just being content in their presence and their relationship and, and not having that self-seeking focus, but just being together, I think is just really extraordinary. <laughs> Oh, that's really well said, Anne. Uh, really, yeah. I mean, it does cap, and I think it, you're right. It captures both moments, doesn't it? That that um, you're on the other side of something that was uh, well, filled with a kind of uh, uncomfortable, and many of us may find ourselves there right now you know, in our relationships with God. Um, but to have this uh, other image too that the. That, um, your work in this group on liminality and crossing thresholds, uh, weaning is certainly uh, a successful weaning, is really moving to the other side of that threshold. Um, and the kind of comfort and the a restoration of intimacy without the actual nursing. Um, it's a beautiful uh, way to imagine, I think, um, our, our way of being with God. Others. Hi. Um, I thought of two things yeah. while um, I was listening to the, both the psalm as you read it, as well as um, the conversation questions. And um, uh, first of all, I thought this would make a, something great to to preach on if I wanted to focus specifically on a Mother's Day sermon. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but also, I think for all of creation as well, if, if uh, there's something I want to preach on concerning creation, this would be another great psalm to focus on for that, um, to bring in. Julie, can you say a little bit more about the latter? Uh, what, when you say, what, 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 what is it that, that you see um, uh, that brings it into all creation? Because mothers are creators. I mean, I know fathers are a part of that, but mothers are the ones that carry the child, that that nurse the child, that wean the child. And um, that's what God did with us in creation. Um, he created us in all of the nation, all of creation in steps and then 
us as humans in his image. And um, uh, so um, I can see how, especially like this question of, of, of the imagery of God as a mother who has weaned her child successfully. And um, I believe God did wean us successfully. We, we rebelled <laughs> after we were weaned, but I believe God did re- uh, wean us successfully and um, uh, continue to be with us, continue to walk with us, continue to want us to come back to his lap and sit on his lap. And we instead rebelled against him. So I, I think uh-huh. you could easily take that and, and, and uh, make it a sermon. But I also had a personal image that jumped into my mind. I had a great grandmother that I was pretty young, about four years old when she passed, but I still remember her because, you know, she never nursed us. She never, but mm-hmm. she would always want us to crawl into her lap and she would rock us mm-hmm. and talk to us and sing to us and tell us stories. And, and I kept thinking of her while um, you were reading this and it just was so warming to my heart. And, um, to have those image come into my mind as you read it. So those were the two things that caught me about this particular. No, song. that's good. That's really good, Julie. Thanks. Thanks for developing your point too. I appreciate that. Cause I know I understand better and I think you really, you've got some great um, imagery going there that would be worthy of exploration. And I think make connection for many of us, you know, not everybody, but many people have that, that sense of, of the comfort of somebody's lap and uh, um, what that feels like. And so how does that shape our sense of being in God's presence? It's a very different image than um, kind of the formal uh, temple, you know, sense of liturgical propriety and things like that, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm watching our time and I think I've got one minute left. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so let me quickly, I, I just, I, I want to get Martin Luther in here before we go away. Uh, and then I'll show you the bibliography, but um, well, this is, uh, Luther also loved to use short words and uh, pithy kinds of imagery. And he talked about um, the Psalter being like a little Bible. And so here's the, here's a part of the text. It seems to me that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the trouble to compile a short Bible, an example book of all saints, so that whoever could not read the whole Bible would have here almost an entire summary of it comprised in one little booklet. And if you see the context of that, he's talking about how we are invited to bring our whole lives um, before God, and we don't have to hide any uh, feeling um, that the that God invites us. Well, we are so grateful for your presence here with us today, Dr. Kwam, and um, I know that you got us, you did get us back into the seminary student mode or the the learner uh, mode, and so we we do just thank you so much for that. Um, As we kind of wrap up our our time together today, I want to see if you have a final word of encouragement or or hope that you would offer to us as as we're listening to, to you today. I guess my word of encouragement is uh, I, the 
the, the Psalms encourage us to bring our whole lives, our whole self as individuals and even as communities to bring them to God. And uh, sometimes that's really hard for Protestants to do um, in the United States where we think uh, only certain parts should be revealed. And uh, the invitation is just so overwhelming. Thank you, that's beautiful. I do, I, I have to make the point that the Lutheran brought us Martin Luther today. And so we are grateful for that reminder of our heritage. Um, and, and so thank you for that as well. <laughs> so. Well, friends, um, we do have one more Theology 101 conversation. And so next week, we're going to be offering an opportunity to kind of make explicit our conversation of our context as Christians, the church. And so we will be having a focus on ecclesiology and we'll be talking about how we can understand and live into uh, being the church when we are not able to gather in one place for worship as we are used to doing. Uh, so Dr. Amy Oden and the Reverend Austin Rivera will be joining us for that conversation. So anyone who wants to join Thursday, uh, September 24th at 10.30 a.m., you can register for that conversation and find more resources at greatplainsumc.org slash at dash the dash threshold. for our conversation today about navigating ministry in liminal time. You can find links to join future conversations at greatplainsumc.org slash at dash the dash threshold or subscribe to our podcast at the threshold on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. As for today, we hope that you've been able to see our new reality a bit clearer, asked a few new questions and been encouraged. And in the days ahead, we hope that you're finding some light at the threshold.